Uh, we have just in North Carolina alone, one and a half million people with, who started a degree and were not able to finish. So um, that some college, no degree population needs to get be educated in some, some way. And a competency-based approach means that all of their prior knowledge, all of their prior learning can feed into completing that, that degree um, or that certification. Education, collaboration, collaboration. Every girl and every boy in the city on the boy deserves the doctor for to have an opportunity in La Piazza. Welcome to In Piazza. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Moe. This is our 11th episode of In Piazza, and we've, Jeannie, been incredibly fortunate to have. Just uh, sensational guests, Reed Hastings, Carlos Watson, Jeb Bush, Joe Lonsdale. And, uh, you know, our, our, our goal really is, is, as our audience hopefully knows at this point, is to, uh, you know, to introduce a growing and intellectually curious audience to friendly and thought-provoking discussions. Uh, the kind you might have if you had a chance to be around the town square. And today is, to is, is, is no different. So true, Michael. We are catching up with our friend, North Carolina State Superintendent Catherine Truitt, who was elected in 2020, and she is in charge of North Carolina State Education Programs. It's one of the few states that has an elected state superintendent, um, and that's a challenge to do off a big, across a big state, so we look forward to hearing more about that. Catherine's career started in education, um, began as a high school English teacher. She spent 10 years in high school and middle school classrooms. She was appointed by Governor Pat McCrory in 2015 to serve as his senior advisor in education. And prior to becoming superintendent, she was chancellor of Western Governors University of North Carolina. Catherine, it's so great to have you in Piazza. Thanks, Jeannie and Michael. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with your um, your career and and your most recent shift to state superintendent. You won a statewide office that till only recently um, was filled by someone who'd been in office like 30 years. What was that like to run? What was it like to um, join this office and kind of be a newcomer, if you will, and not a 30 year veteran of that of that office? And what were some of your big takeaways from that experience? So I entered this race um, with the opinion that the state superintendency should not be an elected role. Um, and I emerged victorious, and I still believe that the state superintendency should not be elected. Um, so it was um, not something that I ever planned on doing. Um, I never saw myself when I was a high school teacher, I never saw myself as an education leader didn't really understand uh, that there was this animal called education policy um, and, and until the governor's office approached me um, about working as uh, Governor McCrory's education advisor. Um, so I learned a, an incredible amount of information and, and, and gained so much knowledge in that role. Um, and then just sort of my, my experience in the classroom, in policy, in higher education and, and really workforce development kind of led me to this place where I, I thought I'm the right person at the right time. And um, the voters agreed and, and here I am. That's awesome. Talk to us about 
your family and have they adjusted to this uh, new normal for you? What, what, what got you into education? What really inspired you to, to pursue this? Oh, I love that question. My father was a teacher and my grandparents were teachers. Um, in fact, I, I, my father was a high school band director for many years and um, is still teaching middle school band in Ohio, 54 years on the job. Um, but when I was little, I spent a lot of time, my sister and I did, at, at the high school where he was the band director. And at the end of every school year, I, I, would, get, I would get into the school dumpster and pull out grade books and, and folders and detention slips and staplers and anything I could get my hands on so I could play school. I always wanted to be a teacher. There was never a time when I didn't want to be. Um, I, I've had an interesting teaching career because I, I married a Naval officer and we moved all around the United States. And I also taught overseas in the British school system for uh, about three years. Um, and, and so I think that that gave me a really unique lens through which to view education, especially especially that kind of European um, model that, that, um, that, that England has um, uh, with a national curriculum mm -hmm. and very prescribed assessment standards, um, very, uh, um, very different opportunities for post-secondary education in the United States. Um, and, and so my, I, I have three children now, one is in college, two are still in, in public schools here in Wake County, uh, near, you know, I'm in Cary, North Carolina. And, um, it, it's, it's, I'll tell you, it's quite a burden on a family to run for public office, no doubt about it. And, um, not really something you can understand until, until you're, you're in the middle of it. Um, and so I'm incredibly grateful to my husband and my children for their patience with me as a candidate. That's uh, you know that makes one of the things that makes me fascinated because first of all, what you said earlier about you know you didn't know as a teacher about education policy like that was new to you when you joined the governor's office and and that is so much the case across the country and so a it's bravery congratulations to go through something like that but it must have just been eye opening mm -hmm. to experience that maybe you can help us figure out how to get more educators to understand there's a policy aspect because i kind of feel like if more knew that there wouldn't be nearly as many problems with the system am i overstating that no, I think you're absolutely right. And to that, I would add the biggest shocker for me was the not just the policy aspect, Jeannie, but also the amount of dollars, both private and philanthropic and, and public, that went into education in things that had very little to, to do with schools. And how many programs and advocacy groups um, and the, the, again, the money that's spent and we're still getting the same outcomes that we've had for, for, for 30, 40 years. Um, I, I do think that it, uh, in, in my role now, it's very clear to me that teachers are usually the last to know things start all the way up here and they kind of trickle down and teachers feel like things are being done to them. They have, no, by the time a policy gets to them, 
it's done. They have no say at all. Um, <clears throat> at the same time, um, if I were to gather a teacher group and ask for recommendations on our ESSER policy, I would be met with a blank stare. So, uh, or, or ESSA for that matter. Right. <laughs> we have ESSER right. and ESSA. So, um, but I do agree with you. We, we need to do a better job of um, explaining how education, law, and policy comes to be. So one thing we uh, completely share is the belief that the um, foundation for getting access to the future and participating in opportunity, the foundation of, is getting quality access to quality education. Um, you talked about your family being involved in the education. How has the access to quality education played out in your career, and and how do you think of um, you know how, how do you think um, we, we we can do to to really um, broaden the access that, that that students need to you know to, to be successful? Well, I I grew I certainly grew up in a college going culture mainly because my father was the first in the family to go to college and so it was you know I grew up in a house where there was absolutely no doubt that that I was going to go to college um, I actually ended up deferring my acceptances and moving to Germany where I worked as a, a nanny for <laughs> a school year uh, which was very unusual to do in 1989 and and I happened to um, be in Germany when the wall fell, which was um, an, an incredible, incredible coincidence that I, the year I graduated from high school happened to be the year that, 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 that the, the wall fell. Um, so I think what's interesting about access to education is the idea that we are, um, I, I believe at the, the cusp of redefining what it means to be educated in our country. And um, I saw this firsthand when I was at Western Governors University, um, which is a, a, for those listeners who may not know, is a nonprofit, 100% online, 100% competency-based university. And the idea that a, a, the value proposition of a WGU is that an adult who needs to return to finish a degree um, because we have an incredible amount, uh, we have just in North Carolina alone, one and a half million people with, who started a degree and were not able to finish. So um, that some college no degree population needs to get be educated in some, some way. And what does that mean? Well, a competency-based approach means that all of their prior knowledge, all of their prior learning can feed into completing that that degree um, or that certification. And certainly um, the, the idea of a traditional residential four-year college experience is, I don't, the word access doesn't come to mind when I think about a traditional four-year residential college experience. Mm. It's really fascinating. The numbers that you're using, North Carolina, as you know, they parallel across the country. And, and yet there's like these two minds. One says, um, okay, well, maybe college isn't for everyone and we should just prepare them for something else. But then they forget to even offer them that opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so I wonder how we get past that where everyone should start from a from a position of they have access or should have the opportunity to have access to a wide variety of pathways. Yes. And those pathways could be one, two, three, four, six years, or maybe it takes you longer. But this notion of competency, I wonder if you can, I bet you most of our listeners on NPiazza, as sophisticated as they are, don't think about competency. It's just like teachers don't think about education policy. Explain what that really means. Because, and then I want to ask you about kind of how do we then make sure all schools, K-12 are competency-based so that you don't keep having kids starting school you know, already deficient. Yes. So competency-based education is the idea that the learning is fixed, the time is um, the variable. And so if I am pursuing a competency-based degree, I am going to move on to the next uh, course as, as soon as I have demonstrated mastery in all of the competencies of the course prior. And so we me- it's the idea that you measure learning not with seat time or, or the credit hour as we're all familiar with, but through demonstration of, of mastery of competencies. And for example, at WGU, every course um, that's part of a degree plan or a degree program is built out by um, industry experts. And so it's workforce informed. There are only four colleges, IT, healthcare, education, and business. And all of those programs within those four colleges, and there are 70 some programs, were, were built with the industry alongside the industry. So it's wow. what employers want. So at K-12, what that would look like is students progressing through their education, um, not based on the, the, the age grading, which is um, I'm 10, so I'm in the fourth grade. Um, but here's where I am in my education journey. I've mastered these skills and competencies. Here's what I can demonstrate I know and am able to do. And that's how you progress through. That is the ultimate in, in equitable instruction. Yeah. So, Catherine, um, McKenzie recently came out with a study that showed that the average learning loss for a student during the pandemic was a month in, and, in, the, in reading and, and 1.5 months in math. What are you doing about that to catch up in North Carolina to make up for that loss? And what do you think the, the long-term effect is going to be you know, with uh, the, the remote learning that's been taking place and the, the, the losses that people have endured? Well, there's a, a lot to unpack there. First, I remember when that McKinsey study came out and it's, it's, it's been several months now and I, I, I have a hard time believing that it's only a month and a month and a half um, because I, we know from our initial fall testing data that currently 75% of our third graders as of February were not reading proficiently, three quarters. So um, unfortunately in North Carolina, pre-pandemic, 67% of eighth graders were not reading proficiently nor doing math proficiently. And that's average in the United States. So let's, let's take a step back and say, well, as we start to recover from this pandemic, we have to address what we were doing wrong before. 
At the same time, we have these insane amounts of money coming to us from the federal government with a short window to spend that money. Um, we are we don't want to have another race to the top where we hit that funding cliff and you know people lose their jobs and programs come to a grinding halt. So um, I created what's called the Office of Learning, Recovery, and Acceleration. Um, it is an office that is doing a couple of different things. At its most basic level, it is working alongside our districts to, on the compliance side of the fact that my agency is the pass-through for $3.6 billion to be distributed across 115 um, uh, districts. But then we also, and while we don't have the ability to tell districts how to spend that money, we do have the ability to come alongside them and, and help in particular our smaller, more rural districts um, with fewer resources, human, human capital-wise, figure out what are their needs? How can they best use this money? What sources have we vetted? Um, how, and, and how can we help these districts right. serve their students? That is so amazing. Wow. That's a fantastic idea. I wonder if um, any of your uh, colleagues around the states, I'm sure there's a lot of creative ones, but when you talk about the billions coming down, we're estimating $6,000 per student. And we are hearing and seeing superintendents, we're still worried about budget crises, which is hard to believe under that under those terms, not understand like what you should be doing. I mean, as you know, we're big fans of, you know, okay, maybe we should just give the money to schools, parents, teachers, if you don't know what to do with it. Let's bypass the district administration. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right, that perspective that you just brought, Catherine, that especially in communities that are under-resourced in terms of human capital, rural communities, uh, where do we? Where do you start? You don't want to buy something or hire someone if you don't know where it's going. During Race to the Top, a lot of that money went out in block grants. Well, when you're an under-resourced small rural district, you don't have someone who can write grants for you. Exactly. And so it's a the rich get richer. So we want to make sure that um, that we are. Uh, honoring the principle of local control because local control is important when you're talking about students because no one knows those students better than the people in the community. Right. So, um, Mike, I want to just, just do a quick follow-up on that, on that um, comment. So how did you all do, speaking of local control, how did you all do in COVID? What was your state's closing, opening like? Who did you see? Are there any stars that were open more immediately than others? Were you challenged by some of the same teachers association nonsense other states are? Yes. So um, yes, <laughs> to all of that. Um, our governor, um, like many governors, shut all schools down. And um, then um, rather than seed local control in terms of reopening plans. Um, it, it, it was um, still what I would call a, a one size fits none approach. And so while we had um, Western districts, it, it was actually, you know, I do think that it was well-intentioned, but the truth is that we had great inequities when it, when it came to schools reopening because we had a plan in place or a choice of plans that said, if you can keep kids six feet apart, 
you can have all of your kids back in school in grade, including your high school kids, uh, as long as they're six feet apart and wearing masks. Well, that meant that my child's school, which has, you know, 700 kids per class in a high school, they're not going to be able to do that. So my child's school stayed closed. Whereas our, our, our districts in the far West, which have much fewer students and a little more space, they, they remained open uh, or they, they opened first and I've done visits in the far West and I've done visits in the far East so far. And what we're seeing is, and, and th this is, this is somewhat anecdotal, but this is me asking district leaders, what percentage of your kids are back? There's definitely a correlation between um, low income students are still at home and students who are not not free and reduced lunch are in school. Yeah, <laughs> which is um, you know, back to an earlier point. It's effectively uh, an acceleration of the inequalities that, that yes. existed before the pandemic, and now it's becoming even more pronounced. So, as a as a huge proponent of education, you know, primary, secondary, post secondary, you know, one of the things that is um, you clearly have a focus on is the kind of learning to earn or the direct pathway from you know education and workforce. How do you see that evolving? And just a sort of a related question, you made the point about Western Governors University and competency-based education. I mean, how do you see this evolving in terms of the future of education and what we need to do to create an educated society that you know can 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 thrive and reach their potential um, as 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 the world evolves. Well, okay, I'm going to start with the probably the most significant thing that's that's happened since um, since January when when I took office, and that is that um, we passed legislation in North Carolina that mandates that all pre-K through fifth grade teachers be trained in the science of reading. And that is 100% going to be a game changer for all students in our state and the teachers who will now be equipped. You know, the saying, when you know better, you do better. Through no fault of their own, teachers have been trained in the dominant form in this country of early literacy instruction, which tends to be whole language and balanced literacy, which is not based in research. So that's, that's the first thing. The other major shift that I see happening is we are going to reform our state and federal accountability model. And we're going to start by developing a graduate profile. Lots of, this is not a new idea. Lots of states have a graduate profile and I'm kind of surprised that, that we don't. But we do need a graduate profile that will inform our accountability model because otherwise it's the tail wagging the dog. So we, we want this accountability model to be informed by workforce as well as higher education and the education community. Um, and then we can build our, our assessments next and then really look at implementing a competency-based approach to moving students through school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so well said, thank you. I remember talking to one of your colleagues in the state, Peter Hans, who was the head of community colleges and now the whole UNC system. Mm -hmm. And he was making the same point that when students come in, if there's not a direct sort of outcome pathway 
no one's going to succeed in higher ed. So I, su- I suspect you've got, you know, between you two at the helms of K-12 and higher ed, um, I imagine you make a pretty powerful um, group to, together. So that's uh, really Definitely. extraordinary. Definitely. Um, Catherine, what do you say to uh, listeners who want to do something or people out there who are just curious? You know, education is now not only ground zero for all that's been happening in the pandemic, which is so crazy. If you you know yeah. that we were never on the front page before, and now it's on the front page. Yeah. Um. But there, you know, everyone's trying to get their agenda into the schools, right? And, it, and this has been happening forever, obviously. But it always seemed like there were districts and leaders and parents and teachers who would kind of mitigate that and make sure schools were a reflection of what they believed. I don't think we've ever been at a point where the I will call it, and maybe you don't agree, but um, you don't have to, certainly, an assault on kind of the values of the country that education was even built on being pushed and shoved into schools. And so at the risk of being controversial, but we do like to tackle some of the hard issues here, (laughs) what are your thoughts about what's happening right now with kind of trying to engineer what's being taught? And your thoughts about has the political environment in North Carolina been civil? What do we do to help people see hope for civic engagement? So with respect to education in particular, I try to approach things through an apolitical lens. I, my, my North Star is that every single child in North Carolina should have a highly qualified and excellent teacher in every single classroom. All else falls up under that. And when we start, ta- when we start arguing about you know, um, engineering uh, and indoctrinating and um, um, pushing in political agendas into classrooms. I, for me, I just go back to that North Star. How how does this help kids? Are we keeping students at the center of everything we do? If not, then we're then we're we're not going to do it. I learned from Margaret Spellings, uh, former president of the UNC system and former secretary of education under George W. Bush, that in God we trust, all others bring data. And so I always look at the data. Let's do the root cause analysis to find out why something is happening. Um, If we don't have enough teachers of color in our school system, is is it, why is that? Is it because um, um, schools are deliberately not hiring teachers of color or is there something else at play here? Why is, uh, why are we unable to attract enough diverse teachers into our workforce? Let's look at the data and see what it tells us. So I think that civic engagement um, is possible. I, I, I would say that the political environment in, in the state of North Carolina is very, very um, um, divided. And it's difficult to have difficult conversations. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's very frustrating because to your point, education shouldn't be political. It should be focused on you know, helping children learn and getting the knowledge that they need to be successful and to thrive in life. And yet um, that's that's where we're at. Listen, it's been an amazing conversation with you. Um, you're, you're, keep it going. We can tell that we've got a, a real superstar and champion fighting for the right things and for, for, for students. And 
Um, very much appreciate you joining us at, in, in Piazza. Jeannie and Michael, thank you so much for the opportunity. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Catherine. And as we say in Piazza, see you soon or ci vediamo. <laughs> ci vediamo. Ciao. Ciao. You can find In Piazza wherever you get your podcast. This is a special project of the Center for Education Reform and GSV. Thanks for listening to In Piazza. Ci vediamo, or as we say in English, we'll see you soon. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Moll. Ciao.